Hello and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, Swansea Bay Clinicians Conversations About. And our conversation today is about bereavement. I've got two um, doctors joining me today, Dr. Idris Baker, who is a consultant in palliative care medicine, and um, Sundaria Shivraj, who is our GP end of life facilitator for Swansea Bay. Hello. Hi. We've talked a lot about COVID in our previous podcast, and I think there's a lot to be said about bereavement and COVID and how it's actually quite a different experience of bereavement to to what we're all used to, I guess. What what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's been difficult for a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of communities the last few months. And there were things at the start of the pandemic that we could foresee being difficult in bereavement. So I think we knew at the start that some people would face a death that was after a very short illness, having up until then been quite well, or maybe living with some kind of long-term illness, but but really not expected to get sick anytime soon. And we know that's difficult for, for the people who are left behind, and it can make grieving a bit different and sometimes a bit harder. And then the the fact that for some people we could foresee there being maybe anger about whether the death was unavoidable, whether the illness was was avoidable rather in in itself. And I think we've seen the way some of that has has played out in the the discourse around COVID-19 over the last few months. As an aside, it's one of the reasons that, you know, although I'm, look, I'm a palliative medicine doctor, I don't know anything about public health and infection control, but one of the reasons I think we're all duty-bound to do anything we can to um, to help people observe the control measures that minimise the number of people who are affected. Absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's such an important thing. I know it's a complete digression, but it, it kind of isn't because where there's anger and bereavement, it's often at the thought that maybe something could have been done. Think, um, yeah. And if I want to sleep at night, I've got to be able to know, look, at least I did what I could. At least I helped the people around me do what they could to minimise the number of people. Even if we can't get rid of it, at least to minimise the number of people who are affected. Because the fewer people get it, the fewer people die of it. It's kind of simple in, in that way. But that's been a feature. I know for some people, and, and I almost hate to say it, but for some people almost a sense of guilt, just wondering whether maybe they had somehow been part of what put the person they loved at risk. Maybe it was through their work or whatever it was. You don't want people to feel guilty that way, but I think we need to be upfront and acknowledge that for some people that's been part of their experience. Some people, of course, have have faced multiple bereavements within their family. I know people who've lost both parents. And that's been really difficult, completely unexpectedly. And then, of course, the one that I've got to say, I didn't see coming nearly clearly enough, but we've seen it very clearly the last few months, is the effect of not being able to have the usual contact that you have with a person who's ill and the person who's dying uh, as they near the end of their life. That's such an important thing. And, you know, we value the fact normally, or we should, and I think we do value the fact that people who are nearing the end of their life are living until they die. And we value the fact that what you do in the social domain of life, your interaction with people around you, is not a separate thing, but it's an integral part of why life is valuable, why life can be good, and why even life with a a, a severely life-shortening illness can still have value. That social contact is such a big part of it, and suddenly for quite a lot of people that's been stripped out. It's an interesting point though, isn't it? Because 
we've talked about the importance of social distancing and mask wearing. And then in the next breath, we're saying, you know, actually those social contacts are what make life worth living. And isn't that quite an interesting sort of challenge that everyone is going to face on making the best decision for them and their family, particularly where they have elderly relatives, perhaps who are already chronically unwell, deciding what to do for the best in terms of of being together or not being together and wearing masks or touching grandchildren. I think there's a lot, there's so much social decision-making that needs to be done and it will have a real impact. If you, you know, if you didn't see your grandchildren, then you, then you die two months later. That's, that has implications for the grandchildren, the parents. Should we have spent time together? Should we have made the most of the time we had left? We didn't know. And I think you're right. There's so much guilt and frustration and nobody knew what was coming, did we? Exactly, yes. It has been very difficult during COVID season and bitterment, dealing with bitterment never been an easy thing to do, but especially with this COVID, it's really very difficult for some families, especially those who had multiple bitterment uh, in the families. It's, it's, it's a very hard thing to kind of cope with. Um, I think that one of the main reasons why people are feeling guilt about it or feeling really affected by COVID is not being able to see them when they're loved ones died in hospital yeah because then they're not, they're not being allowed to see them uh, for some for some which number of weeks for some it's like you know a couple of days but in, in either situations that the fact that they've not been able to see their loved ones in the last few days of our last few hours of their life has been really uh, had a major impact on on everyone's life really i think that's the main thing in the primary care we're seeing people coming back and saying we had very much in so and so families, but the, the fact that's affecting mainly is that we weren't able to spend time during the last end of life. It's such a big thing. It's such a big thing. It's such a big thing during COVID, really. And, um, and I find it really hard even talking about the guilt side of it because I, I kind of want to say, well, people shouldn't feel guilty. Family members shouldn't be the ones feeling guilty because you know, all the people I know. People have been in such difficult situations. Gemma, yeah. as you were saying, having to make such difficult decisions. Yeah, I know so many people who they've consistently made the best decisions they could for them and their families and the people around them and their communities. I don't know whether that's true of everybody, but it's certainly true of the people I've come across. But I think it won't do to ignore the fact that some people, and we've met them professionally, some people are left with that feeling of guilt. Yeah. It won't do to dismiss it and say, well, you shouldn't feel. It won't do not to talk about it. I think part of dealing with bereavement, part of helping people, supporting people through their grieving, has to be opening up that space, that permission, that acknowledgement of the things that people are feeling. Yeah, and then I absolutely you can start agree. And I think actually there's a degree of physician guilt in all of this as well, in that normally as a doctor, you sleep at night by doing everything you can for a particular patient. You know that you've got every investigation done you thought about everything you possibly could you got them admitted to hospital if you felt they needed it you managed their pain quickly and well you know this is how we manage bereavement of our patients isn't it is by knowing that we did everything we could and in the last few months with services not running as as they usually do I think there is an element among among doctors of feeling that you know could we have done more could we have done differently we didn't know about this illness. We didn't know what its effects were going to be. Was there something we could have done to preempt it? Should we have done this, that, and the other? What do you think, Sundaria? I completely agree. I think uh, physicians, healthcare professionals, point of view, it has been uh, a very stressful and challenging as well. The fact that 
may not be able to see those patients or families face to face and spend time um, when they are uh, at their end of life. Normally, the uh, CPR advanced care planning conversations, it all happens face to face, making sure, you know, we feel like that the presence next to the person is, it makes a big impact rather than speaking to them over the phone and making relations over phone or, or video consultation. They're both they're not the same really and it's been really challenging and we, we I think most of the healthcare professionals felt like you know we possibly didn't weren't able to deliver uh, as good as we as we would have normally wanted to give to that patients but that's the best thing that we all could do in the current situations with the COVID pandemic. Still, everyone is kind of trying to work uh, um, hard to, to deliver the best service possible. Uh, but when it comes to the very moment, when it comes to the end of life care, it's been really challenging. And the guilt is the same for healthcare professionals, not just as equal to families. I think that's so important to note, isn't it? You know, there's this this concept of moral distress that you find in the in the literature on this, and we know that one of the things that is difficult for health professionals is knowing what you think you should be able to do, what you would do in the yeah. ideal world, and spotting the gulf between that and what yeah. you were able to do today. And it, it's been identified for decades as a thing that health professionals will always struggle with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think sometimes we underestimate, you know, the effect on ourselves emotionally of going through mm -hmm. something as extreme as this. Most of us didn't train in war zone medicine and trying to make big decisions fast. Most, you know, most of us thrive on a little bit of adrenaline and might enjoy making some decisions, you know, under sure. slightly stressful circumstances, but most of us didn't expect to be yeah. in the situation we were in a couple of months ago, making big decisions, That's talking right. about an illness we didn't understand and we didn't know, and knowing, you know, that we may be affected, our loved ones may be affected, healthcare professionals seem to be getting affected more in other countries. So That's that was a constant that's you know, right. concern here that, you know, were we putting ourselves at, re at risk more than, you know, how we didn't know, we didn't know the extent. And I think there's a lot of probably emotional damage to everyone from this situation. There's certainly been some strain, hasn't there? You know, one of the things that struck me again from very early on in the pandemic was the health professionals I was working with wanting so desperately not to make this about them. And people repeatedly saying to each other and, and clearly thinking the reason I want to protect myself is that if I get this, then there's two possible outcomes. Either I'm not here for the next patient because I'm now home and isolating or even worse, I'm here and I'm a risk to my next patient yeah. and I pass it on. I don't want to be the vector. I don't want no. to be the next super spreader. No one wants to be a super spreader. <laughs> no. And, 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 and you know, all of us, I think quite rightly, acknowledging what's difficult for us, but at the same time, desperately wanting not to make this about us, but thinking, how do I need to be, how do I need to carry on? How do I need to make sure that I can keep doing what I'm doing? Because hopefully it's of some use. And, you know, as somebody very wise once said, you've always got a duty to the patient in the waiting room as well as the one in the consulting Absolutely. room. You've got a duty to the people you can see next week, next month, next year. Yeah. And and so how do we how do we sustain that in the face of those repeated stresses and the yeah. repeated losses? Yeah. We've all lost colleagues. Exactly. And we've all lost patients. And, yeah. and and there is some grieving there. But I guess the good thing is we can we can take from that some empathy. Because although I've had my losses 
some of the people I see as patients and some of their families have lost so much more. And if I can just pick up a little bit of empathy from my own experience and my colleagues' experience, well, if that just helps me not to put myself in their shoes, but at least to begin to understand the support that they yeah. might be needing, well, I can take something good from it. I think it gives you an ability to listen to someone who, who's got something to tell you as well. I hope so. If you, uh, if you feel as though you've had, as you say, some degree of loss, and I think, as you say, mm -hmm. we all have, we've all lost colleagues, there's family members, friends, exactly. you know, it's, it's, it's a condition that probably has touched everyone here in one way or another. Yeah, and I think bereavement is such an, it's an interesting to topic of discussion because it always affects everyone differently That's anyway. Right. And there's always, you know, undertones of anger or isolation or distress about some element of care, I think really, really have a massive impact on how someone can process their grief and continue afterwards. Yes. And some of the most difficult cases I've dealt with as a GP in the past are, are people who've undergone a difficult loss and can't get past what the difficulty around it, whether it's anger, a feeling that a treatment was inappropriate, a feeling that a treatment wasn't given when it might have been, a feeling of guilt that perhaps they didn't do enough at the time. And I think, as you said, COVID has really drawn all of those emotions together for almost yeah. every case so that whereas a difficult bereavement or a complicated bereavement might have been something we saw now and again, yes. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of it I think you're right. over, over the next few months. And I'm so aware that a lot of people haven't been able to do the things that they would usually do early in that process of grieving after death, the things that would usually begin to help. So funeral rituals, as an example, but other kinds of social interaction that normally we, we know to be such important steps in dealing with the, uh, the effects of bereavement. And, and I think, you know, we're going to need to be looking out for the effects of that, but also looking out for the opportunities. I could foresee communities, whether those are geographic communities in villages or workplace communities or whatever it might be, coming together for some sort of collective observance when we get to a point where it's more safe to do that. Yeah. Collective memorialisation, I guess. We've seen people do it after wars. Yeah, and there's absolutely. so many parallels, aren't there? And, and I could foresee in the, in the not-too-distant future communities coming together in that way to support each other with some sort of collective acknowledgement of, of what they've lost, collective thanks for what they have had. Yeah. Um, and and I, you know, I guess over the longer term, we're going to need to think about what our role then is as, as clinicians in supporting that kind of, um, that, that growth, that healing, not moving on, not getting over, but actually living with the effects of, of the grief that people have experienced. Yeah. I mean, have you got any ideas, Sandario, of you know what we could do as, as GPs to possibly support people more in that in that situation. Yes, I think there are a few different things. I mean, health board and healthcare professionals have identified like the bereavement problems, so especially during this COVID. And bereavement support service has been established, and since um, since the beginning of COVID, um, I'm not sure if everyone is aware of it. Like, you know, as soon as there is a, a death being registered, uh, the bereavement support service are trying to contact families, or if not, that's so they're. I think the funeral service, um, so they can offer the number to patients, who the patients can contact themselves as well. So there is bereavement support, which has already been established to support the community, yeah. uh, which uh, I think uh, everyone should make use of it. As Dr. Idris said, it is very important to talk about it. 
it's, it's counseling, it's a kind of counseling basically. So the, the close counseling is still available for mm. anyone who kind of self-refer and that's a fantastic service it for bereavement support. Yeah. Um, at the same time, this COVID bereavement support is established and that's a very good service. I think everyone should make use of it. Um, the, the healing process can take longer, but uh, the support can make it a bit more easier, yeah. make it quicker. So that's important to, um, uh, to reach so everyone should get aware of there is a service available to support them. Mm. Yes, again, they can come and talk to GPs. So we are here, as I said, GP surgeries. They're not closed, the doors are closed, but we're still dealing with all kinds of problems that's coming through our doors. The only difference is we're just triaging them, talking to them over phone first, and if needed, we are bringing them to see them in the surgery as well, making mm. sure they're safe and healthcare professionals are in safe environment to see them. Mm. But yes, if there's uh, issues, problems around the remainder, stress, anxieties, or, 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 or any depression symptoms, or anything post-bereavement, we are there, mm. uh, GPs are there, uh, out there to help people. And GPs are really good. At helping with that. That's my experience of it. There's, there's so much skill that, that you're able to bring to bear. And I find people, you know, I, I know people, people have sometimes felt a bit awkward about needing to, as you say, close the doors. But I found a lot of patients saying they really value being able to have a telephone contact. But that's all. That, that, that's, yeah. it's not, that's all. That was actually perfectly designed to meet the need they had at the time. Maybe yeah. even better than having to travel to the surgery and wait in the waiting room and talk to someone face to face. But actually, the conversation was what they needed. So I think we've seen people really valuing that support. Exactly. I mean, we had a very good feedback. I mean, lots of people are happy that you know they're able to get um, telephone consultations, video consultations. Patients love it because, especially elderly populations and uh, or even youngsters with this childcare, like you know, they used to bring all the families to see uh, little children to see us for any kind of consultations. Now they fight. Oh, video consultation is a great service. You know, they sit in their house and it five ten minutes of consultations. It's quite good. And same will work for bereavement support services yeah. as well. It's all the need is talking to someone. Yes. So it can be either telephone consultations or That's video right. consultations. Uh, as long as they're having the support and you know, yeah. someone to chat with, I think that people do love it. I think, as you say, talking is really important, especially coming back to what you said about guilt. I think just sometimes bouncing what your feelings are off someone else and, and being a GP and listening to that, you know, I feel guilty because we didn't see them and then... You know, us saying, well, you couldn't see them. You know, there were rules in place. No one was allowed to go and see anyone else. You couldn't have done anything differently. I would have done exactly the same. Sometimes that's all someone needs right. to just normalise that moment and feel as though, well, actually, they're right. You know, I, I didn't do anything that, you know, anyone else wouldn't have done. I think in that situation, that was okay. I'm not saying that's going to cure everyone a quick chat with a GP, but sometimes it does really help. And I think as a professional... If I'm feeling uncertain about something that's happened in my, you know, decision making for a particular day, if I bounce it off a colleague and they would have done exactly the same thing, it's definitely reassuring, isn't it? I think there is definitely reassurance to be gained just by talking to someone else from an outside perspective who can give you their their point of view. And I think that's why we're valuable because we know those patients. That's right. We are we have a relationship with them, and hopefully you can have those conversations a little bit more openly. It doesn't matter if it's over the phone, as you said. I think they are. Phone consultations are quicker for a lot of people, more convenient. There's a lot to be said for them. I don't think they can completely replace face-to-face. -face, That's right. But there's a lot to be said for just being able to access someone quickly and easily, isn't there? Yeah, okay. Um, I think we've covered a lot of what I was thinking about bereavement. Was there anything else you two wanted to raise? 
No, it's, I mean, obviously it's a massive topic of discussion, but probably beyond the scope of a podcast. But thank you so much, both of you, for coming and chatting oh, thank you. Um, about this today. And um, I'm sure people listening will get a lot out of it. Oh. Thank you, Gerald. Thanks again.